I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the 10th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 10. After a couple of studies in which we have traced out the line of thought in the 10th chapter that has to do with uh, the ways of the nations being ways of and customs of idolatry, of worshipping the works of men's hands, worshipping entities that are nothings, that could do neither good or evil. They can't help us in a time of trouble. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They, they cannot walk. They, they cannot affect anything of any good. And the contrast is the true God, the living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains the world, the God who intervenes in human history. And we come to the end of the 10th chapter, and in a real sense, it, it, it really is the concluding part of a whole section that began in the 7th chapter. It began with Jeremiah's temple sermon, in which he takes up the sin of the nation in their misuse of God's worship, in their failure to take seriously what the temple stood for. They thought the temple was like a lucky charm that would keep them from harm and keep them from ill and keep them from danger. And as long as they had services in the temple, uh, everything was fine. Their city would be safe. Their nation would be safe. um, And they could go and do what they will. Live as they please and engage in practices that were clearly contrary to God's word. They would be worshipping the Baals. They would be gauging in injustice. They would be carrying on activities of sexual immorality. They would be failing to keep, heed the, the needs of the, of, the, of the poor, of the widow, of the orphan, of the afflicted. And then they'd come to the temple and they'd give worship. They'd say, hey, we're here. We're here, Lord. And that's all that's required of us. And uh, Jeremiah takes them to task. And he says, in essence, this temple is not long in its duration. This security is a a false security. That uh, the practices that are done within this house of mine have made it, instead of my house, a den of thieves. It's made it into something that it was never designed to be, intended to be. And it's not going to be any preservation for the nation. And as idolatry increased, as wickedness increased, as injustice increased, we really come to the end of this whole section that takes the nation to task, primarily for their religious sins, yes, injustice and such things, but in the sense that they would do all those wicked things and then think they could get out of all of the consequences for their immorality by attending services, by carrying on worship. That that was something that, um, again, God says was appalling and God says is, is just tantamount to apostasy. It's tantamount to forsaking him. And at the end of the day, the picture is a picture of the city falling to the Babylonians, of the people of the city having to leave the city to go into exile. It is always an interesting thing how relevant the Bible seems to our own day in which we live. You know, we have a conceit, I think, in our world today to think, well, the world is probably worse than it's ever been, ever. 
and the state of things for God's people is absolutely at the most appalling end of and how could God continue to bring any kind of tomorrow in the light of all the things that we've done and the fact is the world hasn't changed the world is about as bad as it's ever been and the evils of the world may be in other ways than maybe we, what we think are the most appalling things that are imaginable. I think one of the things we think that is because in a long time, the presence of the church, the presence of Christians and American society kind of made it unacceptable to be all that overt and open about the tribes and transgressions that people commit in secret. That's what Paul says, is that... Uh, you know, we're to reprove the, the unfruitful works of darkness, uh, the things that are done by them in secret. It was a secret thing. And now a lot of that stuff gets paraded openly. And maybe that's the reason people think that the world is uh, its most uh, appalling uh, low. Well, be that as it may, uh, the reality is the world is what it's always been. And tr- the troubles of the world are what they've always been. And we might look at a scene like this and say, oh, that's a matter of ancient history. A people that would be forced out of their homes. A people that would be led away from their, from their lands. A people that would become exiles and refugees. Have we not read the news? Do we not see even in our own day? That there are people that are needing to leave their lands, leave their homes. And if they don't, the kind of thing Jeremiah speaks about is going to be fall their land. There's going to be the thunder, not of chariots and of horses' hooves, but there'll be the raining down of bombs. There'll be destruction that they will face. And so it's not just Gaza. And it's not just Syria of a couple of years back, we're probably still. It's Kosovo, it's Bosnia. I mean, you just multiply the ways in which ethnic cleansing has come to places and people have had to flee. Uh, the persecution of their nation, they have to flee. Um, attacks from other nations. And here it is, in full measure, to a nation that had the promises of God that this land would be theirs in perpetuity, but not without conditions. The condition was that they would be faithful to his covenant. The condition would be that they would be obedient to his laws. The condition was that they would show forth with gratitude of heart the privileges that God had given them, the advantages that God had given them, the blessings that God had bestowed upon them. But again, as we saw in the trek out of Egypt in the Sunday school this morning, the problem was these were people who largely did not have the Holy Spirit. These were not a people that were inwardly transformed. This was, this, this was a people that thought all these blessings are theirs by right. I mean, we're the covenant people. Sure, we should have these blessings. They're part of our national identity. So why would God ever take them away from us? They'd grown accustomed to it. They never saw it as a manifestation of the goodness of God that was held out to them on loan requiring them to be a people who praised and worshipped and blessed the living and the true God. There would be a people that would worship him and, 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 and live for him and serve him and be faithful to him. But they were not. And as a result of that, this is what God says through his prophet. Now I'm going to read the rest of chapter 10. One of the things that gets a little bit confusing, again, as you read a lot of these sections in the book of Jeremiah, 
is to know exactly at each point who's speaking and uh, uh, the voice is not always clear. I think it does begin with the voice of the prophet. I think it moves uh, from the voice of the prophet to the voice of the people, probably the people of Jerusalem, uh, in the whole section that speaks of uh, it speaks of my children have gone for me. That, that's the city speaking. It's the people of the city that are the ch- children of the city. You know, you have, have the cities are spoken of in feminine ways. It's uh, and, and 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 the city has children, the, the population, and, and and Jerusalem is going to be divested of their population. Uh, Rachel uh, is said to be weeping for her children, for they are not in chapter uh, 29, I believe it is, or later on anyway, 30, 31, that speaks of Rachel's uh, weeping over her children that are no, are, are no longer. Why? The Babylonians took them away. I know Matthew also quotes that with reference to the killing of the infants in Bethlehem in, in the book of Matthew. But the original context was the Babylonian captivity. It was the way in which the people were taken away. Either they were taken away into exile or they were killed in war. And so the people are told in the face of the coming invasion, in the light of the coming of the Babylonian armies upon the city, to gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. The Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming. Remember back in the day, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Yeah, it's the Babylonians that are coming. And they are coming indeed. Not just in terms of a movie, but in terms of actual history. The Babylonian armies are coming. For thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt. Again, this is not the city so much speaking. This is again back, Jeremiah speaking. How this is affecting him personally. Woe is me because of my hurt. Uh, the, the city probably doesn't feel anything. Jeremiah feels it for them. He speaks of his hurt. My wound is grievous, but I said, truly this is an affliction, and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are not much like Rachel's cry later on. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains, for the shepherds are stupid and do not require, inquire of Yahweh. Therefore they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold it comes. It's almost like uh, extra, extra, read all about it. It's almost like a, here's the news that's coming, a messenger that's bringing the latest report. Behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals, an inhabitant of wild animals no longer fit for human habitation. I know, O Yahweh, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not, it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Yahweh, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, on the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. It's not just in the Lamentations that the prophet laments. 
not in the just in the, the book of Lamentations. Lamentations fill the book of Jeremiah, his complaints brought before the people of God, uh, brought before the Lord on behalf of the people of God. And this might be a section that kind may be reflected, may, may be considered as something like reflections on the eve of exile. What ought the people in Gaza to be thinking in the light of the coming invasion of Israel? Well, I don't know what the proper thing would be. Hopefully they would flee to the Lord of God of heaven. They would flee to Christ and find in him one who is the helper of an oppressed and distressed and a needy people. But I'm sure many hearts are considering deeply what their responsibilities would be in the face of an of, of a invasion of a hostile army. Well, Jeremiah is concerned to give reflections and instruction and prepare the people for the exile. Later on, you're going to see that Jeremiah prepares the people for, who are in exile for how they are to conduct themselves and comport themselves in Babylon. He writes letters to them. But even while he's in the land, ministering to the people, he's preparing them for things that are to come. Now, what's his message for them? Well, first of all, it's a message of removal. It's a message of removal. The people are going to be removed from the land. The Lord says, Behold, I'm slinging out the inhabitants of the land. Like someone would take the stone in a slingshot and just sling it. God's going to sling his people out from the land. The God who brought them into the land, planted them in the land, settled them in the land, gave them victory over the Canaanites, and gave them their inheritance in this land. Now God says, I'm slinging them out. And again, it may well be that there's something of the flavor of you read about in Leviticus, which tells the people that it was the sins of the inhabitants of the land that caused the land to vomit them out. Of course, it wasn't the land, but it was God. But it's almost like the land says, these inhabitants that commit these atrocities, that commit these abominations, the land can no longer sustain them. The land is just going to fling them out or sling them out or vomit them out. Uh, but the people that now occupy this land are unworthy of the land. And hence their habitation in the land is soon going to be removed. And Jeremiah tells them to gather up your bundle from the ground. Now, the, from the ground matter, I'm not completely sure of. Perhaps it was they laid their bundle on the ground and then they took the, this material, like what you might fold up to put all your possessions in so that you might take it and then sling it over your shoulder so that what you're taking out of Babylon is about the stuff that you can carry. About the stuff you can take and tie up in a knapsack and then sling it over your shoulder as you're let out of the city. You know there's reliefs that come from the palace of Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the Assyrian king who was at the threshold of Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter uh, 30, 36. Um, and he had just come from Lachish. And I think I've told you before that there's one room in his palace that has been unearthed. The archaeologists have, uh, have seen in his palace that there was one room in which there were reliefs that, uh, that uh, pictured the, the way in which Lachish was taken, that city that he had been at where the armaments of Israel were stored. And it was one of the major components of his effort to suppress the, the land of Judah. And on those reliefs, 
There are pictures of people being led out of the city, not at the, by the Babylonians, but by the Assyrians, but it's the same kind of picture. And that's what you see. You see them having these bundles over their shoulder that they're carrying out. Go look it up. They're online. You just Google Palace of Sennacherib, Lakish uh, Reliefs, and you'll see some of those pictures uh, on these uh, reliefs of uh, the way in which the people were taken out into exile. And so the land had experienced that kind of thing before in the invasion of the Assyrians some 150 years before. But that was not a total devastation of the land. Judah remained intact. Jerusalem was never taken into captivity and plundered. And again, that only tended to increase the sense of security that the people had, even though they had no right to that security, because they were not obedient. They were not serving the God of their fathers. They were engaged in hypocrisy of worship and injustice and rebellion of every kind. And now the people are finally have come to the point when uh, there's no other recourse. Again, Jeremiah's given warning again and again and again. But repentance is nowhere on the horizon. Nowhere is there a broken heart. Nowhere is there people who are considering their need to turn away from their idolatry, to turn back to the God of their fathers. And so the ultimate judgment that God brings for these covenant breakers is the very thing that's described. You're leaving. You're leaving. Gather up your bundle. Sling it over your shoulders. You who dwell under siege, I'm slinging you out of the land. And God says he's bringing distress, he's bringing affliction, he's bringing troubles upon his own people. And it's almost like an incomplete sentence in the original, but it's almost as if it's saying, and see what happens then. And see what happens then. A lot of the translations look to fill in what might be the concluding thought is not just a, a see what happens then when God brings this affliction and distress upon them. The ESV has that they may feel it, that they may feel it. God is bringing the affliction, distress upon them so that the things they are not considering, they'll start to consider. The things they're not taking seriously, they will begin to take seriously. Because one of the ends of this affliction of being sent into exile is that in the land of exile, they will humble themselves. In the land of exile, they will turn back to the Lord. You look at the curses that are found in Deuteronomy 28, and you see that really is the end of what God is determined to do. Look at the passage found in Leviticus 28, in the description of the curses that God would bring upon the nation for their rebellion. Uh, The final thing that is spoken of is their exile, that the people would be taken into a land that is not their own. Um, It says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. This is verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offering, the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall also, uh, it shall not leave you grain, 
or wine or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you and all of your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you, in which you trusted come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you in all the towns throughout all your land which Yahweh your God has given you. And you shall eat of the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters. All these appalling things. And, and the whole end of this is that God would bring these extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions in verse 59, severe and lasting, and sicknesses and grievous upon you. Um, and the end of being scattered will be the end of and I'm trying to find it where the people then turn to God in repentance. Maybe that's in Leviticus that they do it. Maybe it's not here. Or maybe it's earlier on. I, I don't, I don't uh, see it. But the point of it is that they would feel it. They would feel the reality of the anger of God. Uh, it says in verse 67, In the morning you shall say, If only it were evening, and in the evening you shall say, If only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And Yahweh will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise you should never make again. You're going back into slavery. You're going back into exile. And it's a matter of the things that you'll see, the matter of the things your heart will feel. Because God's concern is to humble you before him, to bring you back to him, to bring you to repentance. And even in the out place of where you're taken away, an outcast, when you humble yourself, I think it's in verse in chapter 30. I think there, there it is. It wasn't in 28. It's been in chapter 30. And all these things shall come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you. And return to Yahweh your God. You and your children obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So this is not the final story. This is the great chastisement that's the ultimate judgment and curse that God will bring upon a disobedient people. But it's for the purposes of bringing them ultimately to true repentance, humbling them, and the things that they don't feel now, they will start to feel and the things that they don't see now, they will begin to see. They will begin to see that God meant business when he pronounced these curses. They'll begin to see that their ways were rebellious, that their sins were grievous, that God was just in all that he did, that he he'd not dealt with them even half of what their sins genuinely deserved. God's going to sling them out that in the place of exile, they will be humbled. They'll feel the weight of their sins and they'll turn in genuine repentance. As long as they were in the city, they said, hey, we got the temple. As long as they're in the city, they said, hey, we got these guarantees that they completely misunderstood, but no such guarantee was ever given. God spoke these words of curse that he does now bring upon the people as the siege of Babylon is now on, on the threshold of occurring. Again, reflections on the eve of the siege and of the exile. Now, Jeremiah himself speaks of his own reaction. Now, the people aren't feeling the weight of it. They're not feeling the reality of it. It's going to come for many as a surprise. They thought God, God's eventually going to come to our aid. Eventually, uh, 
this distress will never come upon us. But God says, no, this distress will come. And he wants them to experience the fullness of it, that they might again be humbled before him. Jeremiah, who's understanding all of all this, he looks upon the situation and he declares, woe, woe is me. And again, it's not woe in the sense that judgment belongs to me, but my heart is broken. There's a sense in which there's darkness and little light on the horizon. His heart is for this people. His love is towards this people. And he says, the woe is upon him, not because he's deserving of judgment from God, but he's he's experiencing the hurt of his people. The people couldn't experience that hurt for themselves. They healed slightly the hurt of my people. That's what the false prophets said. They healed slightly the hurt of my people, crying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And now the wound will be grievous. The wound will be severe. And Jeremiah is the prophet of God whose mission is to be to not only proclaim God's, nation, God's judgments to a disobedient and rebellious nation, but also it's a mission that's going to, again, prepare the people for exile. Prepare the people in exile. He says, I need to be strong in the midst of my hurt. I need to be resolute in the midst of my grievous wound. And so he says, truly, this is an affliction. This is the worst of all circumstances that can be envisioned. But I must bear it. I must not be overwhelmed by it and overtaken by it. I must bear it. I'm God's servant. I'm God's prophet. I'm the one who's to bring God's word to the rest of the afflicted believers in the face of this. I'm the one who's going to prepare them for what's before them in their exile, to teach them how they're to conduct themselves and comport themselves in a, in, in a, in a time of exile, in hope of restoration that ultimately God will bring. Jeremiah, in the midst of all of his lamenting and, gre- and, 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 and truly felt grief, is a man committed to still be a faithful servant of God in the midst of a time of exile. I trust if great calamity came upon us as a, as a, as a nation, and we're tempted to be overwhelmed by it and say, woe is me. There's no hope that we, somewhere along the line, when we get past the shock of it all, will say, God has a work for me in the midst of the devastation, in the midst of the affliction. There are needy people of God. I need to serve. I need to, I need to encourage. I need to go with them. In this time of exile, I need to be a teacher to them as best as I'm able. I think of the message I'm going to bring next week on Peter and Jesus' confrontation of him. I mean, the worst of all situations came upon Peter. The Jesus whom he followed and the Jesus whom he believed would be the redeemer of Israel, would be the one who would bring in God's kingdom. He capitulated. He gave in to to his captors. He just simply surrendered and went off with them. To be led away. And Peter was prepared for war. But Jesus had told him, where I'm going, you cannot follow. I must go alone to the Father's house of many mansions. I must go alone through the way of the cross and resurrection into the preparing a place for you in my Father's house. I alone can do this. You can't follow me, Peter. You can't be a co-savior, a co-redemptor, redemptor along with me. Only one Savior qualifies to do the work of salvation, and that was Jesus. And Peter could not save Jesus. 
Jesus saves Peter, not Peter saving Jesus. And there's a real sense in which Peter's work was not to go following Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. You get a little bit of a preview of next week's sermon. It wasn't his role, role to go into the high priest's courtyard to see maybe Jesus is going to turn the tide and some wonderful deliverance is going to happen. No. He was told to wash one another's feet. He was told the new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. His role was to be with his brethren. His role in the midst of this crisis that they were all experiencing. The shepherd is struck and the sheep have scattered. His role was to be with the scattered sheep. His role was to minister to them, to comfort them, to pray with them, to encourage them in the darkest hour of their lives, to share it together and to support one another in the midst of this calamity that had recently befallen them. And I believe that's the reason Peter is told at the beach by Jesus in chapter 21. If you love me more than these, don't forsake the place of your duty again. Tend my flock. Feed my sheep. Take care of your brethren. They're your responsibility, Peter. Your responsibility is not to be the work of redemption or saving me or helping me in the work that I exclusively can do. Your work is to loving me, keep my commandments and not try to figure out another course of action on your own. Jeremiah's course was to, out of love for God, care for his people, tend the flock, minister to their needs, because no one else was doing it. No one else was doing it. He says in the words of verse 21, for the shepherds are stupid. That's very harsh, but it's true. They were senseless people, unable to think a right thought and Engage in a right action. Very much like their stupid idols that they served. These idols that could do nothing right. It could do nothing well. It could do nothing effective. It could do nothing beneficial. The shepherds were just like them. They did nothing to help the people. They only worsened the situation. These leaders that spoke a false message. They were false shepherds. There were people that never inquired of Yahweh. Therefore they've not prospered and all the flock is scattered. Well, who's going to tend the scattered flock? Who's going to care for the scattered people of God? Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm your prophet. I'm your man. I'm the one who must fill the gap. I'm the one who must do what no one else is doing. And it's I must bear it. I must bear up in the midst of the affliction, knowing that God has a work for me to do. And the city is probably reflected in the words of verse 20. I think it's Jeremiah that's himself speaking in 19 and 21. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, this truly is an affliction and I must bear it. Why? Because no one else is going to tend the flock. Verse 21, the shepherds are stupid. They do not inquire of Yahweh. I'm the one that has to pray. Even though God said at this point, stop praying. He's going to resume his prayers. He's going to resume praying for the captive people. He's going to resume praying for the people in exile. He's going to resume helping them and encouraging them, writing letters to them and supporting them. Because that's what a work of a true servant of Christ does. Tends the flock, 
tends the sheep, cares for the people of God. The city speaks in terms of my tent being destroyed. Tents might speak of the tent of the house of the Lord, perhaps. Perhaps an allusion to the temple. Perhaps an allusion just to residences. Maybe in a time of conflict, uh, people flee from other places. Remember, many of the other cities of Judah were already uh, invaded. And you have refugees coming into Jerusalem. And the city has to house the city's children. The people of the city. And a lot of them were dwelling in tents. And now all the cords of the tents are broken. You can't do much to give a permanent place of residence for the people that are already in exile, who've left other cities, who've all come to Jerusalem. The city cries, my children have gone for me. They're, They're not. The city can't house them. The city can't care for them. The city can't protect them. The city can't ensure they're good. There's no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. The city won't be rebuilt anytime soon. It will be ultimately. Days of Nehemiah. But not not anytime soon. The walls will be rebuilt. The city will be rebuilt. There will be the restoration. But now the city is destroyed. It's not a place where they can protect their residences, their residents, their children, the children of the city. They've up and left. They've, they've gone. And there's no protection that is found for them. And so God says, I'm slinging out the inhabitants. Jeremiah says, get ready to go. Gather up your bundle. In the midst of the wound I feel, and the hurt I've experienced, the afflictions that we've known, I'm going to serve Christ and serve God, serve Yahweh in the midst of this devastating situation when the city is destroyed. Its inhabitants have left and there's no hope for it in the future. And so to kind of cement those realities, there's the rumor that comes, the voice that's heard, the extra, extra, read all about it. Here's what the messenger comes to declare. Behold, it comes. There's no stopping it. At this point, there's no turning back the siege. There's no turning back the Babylonians. A great commotion out of the north country. Hear the chariot wheels rumbling. Hear the horse's hoofs sounding. Hear it like an earthquake coming soon out of the north, coming to bring this great invasion upon the city of Jerusalem and to bring this great destruction. It's a very graphic picture of the coming of the ex- of, 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 of the of the siege, the coming of the invasion. Again, we're right on the eve of these events coming. It's come near. We hear it out of the north. And the whole end of what they're going to do is they're going to make the cities of Judah a desolation. They're going to make it a lair of jackals. The only things that can survive are scavenger animals that will eat about anything. Human life cannot exist in the city where dead bodies are piled up in the streets, where blood has freely flown, where there's no longer the produce that you can eat because the Babylonians have taken it all away. If you're going to survive, you can't stay. If you're going to survive, you must leave. If you're going to survive, you have to go along with the Babylonians. You have to say, white flag, I'm ready to go. My bundle's packed. It's over my shoulder. I'm prepared to go into exile. 
are prepared to follow Jeremiah's instruction. That's the only way for salvation in the midst of this destruction. That's the incredible thing that is laid out for us in the book of Jeremiah. If the people are going to survive this thing, they have to hear Jeremiah's words. And Jeremiah's words is, don't think you're going to win. Don't think you're going to survive this thing. You've got to give yourself over to the Babylonians. You have to go with them. Pack your bags. Get ready to go. So when the armies come, they see you got your bundle over your shoulder. And you're ready to say, yes, I'm ready to, ready to leave. Ready to leave. Whatever Babylon wants for me, I'm prepared to do it. I'm prepared to be a Daniel in exile. I'm prepared to be a faithful servant of God in a strange land. Because Jeremiah has told me what my duty is, which is not to fight. This is God's judgment. This is God's chastisement upon a sinful and a rebellious people. And those who hear God's voice coming through the prophet Jeremiah are going to do what Jeremiah tells them to do. They're going to believe his words and they're going to know that salvation for them in the face of this set of circumstances is not to wage war with Babylon. There's no win in that fight but to go willingly and freely into captivity. Bundles packed, over the shoulder, ready to go. Well, at this point, Jeremiah does a little bit of Book of Proverbs. Does a little bit of wisdom literature that comes to light in the words of verse 23. And actually 24 as well. In the book of Proverbs, it says such things as trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths clear. Don't make decisions on your own. Don't look to think you're always right and your judgment is supreme. Give place to the counsel of God. Give place to the words of God. A man's Mind may devise his ways, may think that there's just the right way to go, but God's in the business of correcting us. God's in the business of saying, no, no, your way is not in yourself. You don't get to, to make these ultimate choices. That God is the one who ultimately is disposing the ways of men. I know that the way of man is not in himself. Ultimately, it's not in our ability to determine all the outcomes. We'd like to think we're in control, but we're not. Even when we feel that, yeah, we're in control of this thing, the reality is, is the Lord is overseeing. The Lord is sovereign over the actions of men. God is the one who's reigning. God is the one who is determining. God is the one who's deciding. It's not in man who walks to direct his steps. We may devise our ways, but it's Yahweh who is directing our steps. What an important consideration in the midst of being on the eve of exile, being on the eve of calamity, being on the eve when your worst nightmare is about to occur, to realize, even though this is never the script I would have written, never the, not even a chapter in the script of my life that I would ever have written, God is the one who is ultimately directing the thing. God is the one who ultimately has the right to say what will be. That this is in his hands. God has brought the Babylonians. God has brought the circumstance about. 
And God does it not for reasons of bringing needless pain, but bringing needful correction, needful chastisement, needful humbling of a proud, rebellious, self-sufficient people to bring them in a place of exile to realize the folly of their idolatry, the wickedness of their ways, to wean them off of the idols that they've worshipped and the bales that they've made for themselves and the high places where they bow down of the false gods. God's not going to allow that to go on. The Babylonians, like the Assyrians in Isaiah 10, are the rod of God's anger, the means of his chastisement. And Jeremiah says, it's good, it's right, it should be. Correct me, O Yahweh. Even the prophet is up to learn in the midst of all this. Much less the people, but much more the people. Much more the people have much to learn in this whole process. But as he would recognize the hand of God, that the way of man is not in himself, it's in the hand of the Lord to direct his steps, to direct this whole situation that is now un- un- uh, un- unveiling before his eyes and before the, the eyes of the nation. Lord, bring this correction with some measure of restraint, with some measure of what he says is justice. Now we think of justice in terms of the steely arm of the law that says, guilty. Law says this is your penalty. We like to be like Gervais in Les Miserables. Our rule is the law. I represent the law. The law says you're going to do 20 years hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread? Well, yeah. Regardless of anything else, regardless of genuine repentance, regardless of the change in the heart and life of a man like Jean Valjean, he could care less. The law, that's the thing. Mercy? No. But you know, the law is not just that steely arm that says absolute retribution for all the evils and sins that the nation has done. There's also this aspect of restorative justice, of a justice that rights the wrongs that exist in the culture, in the society at large. It shouldn't just be you want everything, you just want you know, fire and brimstone to fall out from heaven upon the disobedient and rebellious people. Far better that God would bring this judgment or this chastisement to bear to the end that it would restore Israel to a right relationship with him that justice would be restored that faithfulness would be restored that's justice too it's restorative justice it's God bringing the people back to himself and so the prayer is yes Lord correct me but not in the fullness of divine retribution and anger that our sins in full deserve but in justice that will restore the city Restore the people. Humble their hearts. Bring them back to you. Don't bring it in anger. Lest you bring me to nothing. Lest we be totally devastated. Bring it in moderation. You're still the God of the promises. You're still the God who has said that he will bless the seed of Abraham. 
You still are the God who has ordained salvation in the midst of the earth. Lord, don't bring your wrath and the fullness of your anger and the fullness of what our sins deserve. Temper it with restorative justice. Bring us back to you. Bring us back to righteousness. Bring us back to right relationship, right standing, right living before you. Don't deal with us in the fullness and sternness of your wrath and anger. But there is still a place for that fullness of anger, that fullness of wrath that should never really come upon the people of God. Again, even when God deals with us in fatherly chastisement. And again, I think that's the important thing to remember is that, again, the language seems to go back to the book of Proverbs. And this matter of correction is the matter of chastisement in chapter 3, where it says, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Scourges every son whom he receives. It's not in anger. It's not in wrath. It's in love that the people of God are chastised. Now sometimes it feels like it must be anger. It must be God's out to get us, but it's never true. That may be how we feel, but it's never what God intends. He does not, the language of the book of Lamentations in chapter 3 is that he does not afflict from the heart. Because over times it's translated, he doesn't afflict willingly. It's not, it's not his will, it's not his delight, it's not his joy to bring chastisement upon his children. How many of you relish the idea of disciplining your kids? You have to be a strange human being, really disordered in all of your sensibilities to take joy and delight in having to discipline your children. You did it out of principle, never out of joy. Daddy loves you. Last thing I want to do is to be doing this business of correcting you. Much better you had obeyed me. Much better you had complied with what I asked you to do. But this is something I do out of principle. It's something that God does out of principle and also out of his desire to correct his children, to bring them back to himself. Because, again, none of us are without chastisement. Because God's concern in Hebrews 12 says to bring the peaceable fruit of righteousness as the result of the whole process. God's concerned in bringing us back to him in justice, in restorative justice, peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that are exercised by it. Be it there is that place for the ultimate wrath of God that will come upon the nations that know you not. Verse 45. That's where God's wrath rightly falls. Not upon his children. That's a wrath that should bring chastening, to bring amending, to bring repentance, to bring restoration. But the wrath upon the nations that know you not, on the peoples who call not on your name, on the nations who are the rod of your anger against us now, but will be those who will receive their own time of judgment. The ones that have devoured your people, have consumed your people, and laid waste the habitation of your people, they will ultimately be those who will experience the reality of a God of wrath who visits his enemies in wrath. His people ultimately are not to be his enemies. His people are to be his corrected children, his humble children, his repentant children, those who he ultimately brings back to himself. So, again, 
none of us avoid troubles in this world. None of us are oblivious to the conflicts that exist in the world. These things may be happening oceans away, but it's amazing how it comes so close when you see it on the newscasts and you see what people in the world are experiencing. If you have even a shred of humanity within your soul, you say, oh man, how horrid that is, how awful that is. What if such things came here? What if we were the ones to experience such things? Well, I would suggest reflect a bit on Jeremiah's counsel on the eve of exile and take comfort in the reality that in the midst of the worst conditions and situations where people are leaving their homes, leaving their families, leaving everything they've loved, everything they've been accustomed to, as they're slung out of their habitations, that though we feel great distress and great grief and great heartache in the light of it and in the face of it, we need to be strong to counsel others that God has purposes and reasons, that we trust will be purposes and reasons for good, even to believing Palestinians. And maybe those that are not today believing Palestinians will come to be believing Palestinians or the witness of believing Palestinians who face these hardships and who face these afflictions in a way far different than their Muslim neighbors. It's one of the things you've seen in, um, in the Ukraine. It's just how resolute God's people have been in the midst of the great troubles that have come upon that land to show forth the power of the newness of life the gospel brings. To show forth the reality that they have a work to do in the midst of the nation being devastated all around them. To stand strong and resolute in the fear of the Lord, knowing God has a work for them. And they have a message to bring. And they have a ministry to exercise for the glory of his name and for the good of their neighbors. And I believe God's saving people in the Ukraine as a result of the witness of godly Christians. We trust that will be the experience of citizens of Gaza, where there's still not a large community, but a Christian community that still exists, that the Christian community will know the strength that Jeremiah knew in the midst of his own hardships to know how he needs to be strong to address his people, because no one else is going to do it. The false shepherds won't do it. The imams won't do it. The rabbis won't do it. It's going to be the people that know the Lord. The people that know the Lord in a time of trouble will be strengthened will be made strong to do exploits for his name, to take the comfort of the knowledge that this is all of God. This is all divine plan, divine purpose, as heartbreaking and heart-wrenching as it is. And God, in the midst of all of this, has a way, in ways that we don't see it now, but yet we will see it somewhere down the road, where there will be some restorative justice that will come as a result of this. The nations, even in the midst of the outrage of their cruelty and heartlessness, will somehow begin to see that left to us, we're simply going to destroy ourselves. There needs to be some other alternative. There needs to be some other place to go. It's not the gods we've worshipped. It's not military might that's going to ultimately bring ultimate success. It's not false religions that are going to ultimately bring a paradise upon this earth. But it's the God who is living and true. God will bring restorative justice to his people. God will bring healing. God will bring strength. God will bring blessing in the midst of what seems now only to be heartbreak 
and curse because God's not a God who afflicts in anger. He afflicts his people with the heart that designs their ultimate good at the end of the day. Wrath belongs to the unbelieving nations, the people that will not call upon his name, who persecute his people. And even that will bring some sense of balance to the disrupted moral order that the afflictors will be afflicted. Those that trouble God's people will themselves be troubled. No, we take no delight in that. We would much rather to see they're converted. But yet the reality is that in the midst of what seems to be senseless injustice, God's going to right the wrongs. God's going to heal the wounds. God's going to make things to right. If not in this age, yet in the age to come. When Jesus returns, the scales will get balanced. Justice will reign. And the God of heaven and earth will be glorified. And his people will be glorified in and with him. Well, that's some reflections on the eve of exile that Jeremiah expressed. It's practical for days such as this. Let's take it to heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess it's very difficult to face the reality of the world in which we live, the cruelty that we see all around us, the unjustified wars that are the creations of heartless, wicked, lawless men and women. Lord, we know that people just get caught up in the midst of it. Vengeance becomes the ruling passion of the day. We just see your people who ultimately are people concerned with righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit being caught up in the midst of conflicts that they had no part in making. And yet, Lord, you have been pleased to put them in that place and you have a purpose for them that they might minister to the good of others in the midst of it. So we pray for the Christians of Gaza. We pray for the Christians of the Ukraine. We pray for the Christians of Myanmar and the Christians of Somalia and the Christians of the Sudan and the Christians of so many of these other hot spots of the world where horrific inhuman activities go on and people are just simply crushed under the weight of the whole of it. That Lord, your people in the midst of the crisis will have counsel to give, wisdom to offer, a better way to show in the lives that they live and the way that they themselves Show forth your praises in the midst of a dark and dismal time. That they will shine forth as lights in the midst of the darkness of this universe, holding forth the word of life. So Lord, we pray that you would be with your people in the midst of these crises, in the midst of these hardships, in the midst of these ever-present dangers, and you would be their helper, and you would be their strength. We ask you to hear our prayers as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Thank you.